Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So we just did an episode, our last episode, where we were talking about AI and kind of all of it was a a big setup for this particular paper that you wanted to talk about. I love this paper. I just finished a really, really good paper about all of the ways that we should be thinking about that AI can, can go wrong. And I don't necessarily mean that in the sense that it's the robots are going to kill us all, but it's like much more mundane and it makes you think much, much more um, carefully about all the things that can happen in reinforcement learning or in uh, artificial intelligence that you don't think about every day. And so I wanted to talk about that paper. Cool. This is basically all of the problems that you can imagine with robots that would not involve Will Smith saving the day. Well, I wouldn't totally guarantee that there's no way that Will Smith could end up saving the day, but (laughs) mostly it's not about Will Smith saving the day. He does save the earth a lot. Um, Cool. You are listening to Linear Digressions. As an aside, is there a Will Smith movie where he has to defeat robots? Yeah, there is. Which one? There's a lot where he fights like aliens. Oh, yeah. This is why I'm thinking of it. There was a movie called I, Robot, and that was an Asimov book. There's an Asimov book called I, Robot, and it's a fantastic story. Uh, I don't remember if it's a full book or if it's a story, but the film was not about what Asimov's thing was about. It wasn't intellectual and interesting and everything. This is where I, I, I've actually only saw the trailers. I didn't watch the movie, so maybe we'll get angry fan letters. And in fact, this was a very intellectual movie. But no, as far as I, I understand I, it, I might have yeah, seen this movie actually. Over. Yeah, and well, I think that it might have been the hook of this movie, or like certainly this is one of those like tropes in artificial intelligence. So the robots take over the Earth, and they're like killing all the humans and things, and mm-hmm. and people are kind of saying to themselves, "What went wrong?" And usually at some point there's the twist where what you, what you learn is that the robots, which have of course been optimized to, uh, you know, protect humanity and to always do what's in the benefit of the humans. And now everyone's like, oh, well, the programming has gone wrong because they're killing all these humans. But then you find out that what the uh, robots are doing is just actually this very complex calculation where they, they calculate that the humans are destroying the earth and are going to completely make themselves extinct if they continue on this path. And so the robots decide to take it upon themselves to uh, kill enough of the humans that then the extinction event is no longer going to happen and thereby actually saving the, the humans. And so it, it gets all very uh, philosophical. Yeah. And, and that's one of the ways that people like to think about artificial intelligence going wrong is that you sort of give it a simple command, like do what's in the, the best interest of saving human life. And then it comes up with some kind of weird interpretation that you couldn't have anticipated. Now, Katie, uh, I, this is not what we're going to talk about the whole episode, but I do have to say two things. Uh, the first is that iRobot, the, the, one of the main events in the movie is the takeover of Chicago, Uh-oh. which is where you live, right? Uh-huh. All right. Just putting that out there. And then also um, <laughs> on my other podcast, Geek Speak, where we tend to we talk about science and technology and kind of news in that in that sector. Um, and incidentally, if you're looking for it, search for uh, for actually go to geekspeak.org. That's us. There are a couple of Geek Speaks. Uh, but anyway, we covered a story a couple of weeks ago where an artist and roboticist made a robot whose sole purpose was to hurt people. And it's it's not a mobile robot. It's just a robot that sits on a tabletop, and it's got this little um, 
this little holder where you can put your your finger into the into the holder, and then it sometimes stabs you in the finger with a with a pinprick, and oh, sometimes it doesn't. Kind of horrifying. Yeah, it's it's horrifying. It's horrible. Um, and of course, this uh, the artist was saying like he wanted to kind of start the conversation about. Uh, generally with the exception of military robots and and whatnot companies who are experimenting with robotics don't want this trope to be the the way that people think about robotics because it's not necessarily realistic um so this was an art project to kind of get a conversation going about that although Um, i've talked about it a lot before we abandon this track of our discussion and we get onto things that are a little bit more responsible i'm just reminded of this paper that i didn't read in great detail but I loved the title of it so much that it's worth bringing up. Um, so I saw this on the archive a couple of weeks ago. It's entitled Unethical Research, How to Create a Malevolent Artificial Intelligence. And it's a couple <laughs> of researchers. One of them uh, works independently, and then the other one's at University uh, of Louisville. And they actually go through all the various scenarios in which uh, you could, you know, someone might actually be motivated to create a malevolent artificial intelligence. So this includes things like you sort of the iRobot scenario, like you just program it in a not very thoughtful way. And then it sort of spirals out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, one of the things that they list is villains, like an evil overlord wants to conquer the earth and artificial intelligence is part of his plan of domination. Yeah. <laughs> um, corporations trying to uh, take over the world, the military, um, psychopaths trying to add their name to history books in any way possible. You see, this is not the most uh, academic paper that you could find, but I thought uh, it had just such a catchy, uh, such a catchy title that I couldn't help but be reminded of it. Also, anyway. uh, mm-hmm. this isn't exactly a new idea. I mean, th- this is, it's kind of, we're talking about as it applies to robotics specifically, but I mean we've had computer viruses that have that, that are quite advanced and they have the ability to evolve and to respond to to stimuli and kind of change their um, really? their approach to things. That's yeah, super so cool. like this this isn't really a new thing. It's just that we're talking about software with hardware attached as opposed to just software. Interesting. We should explore that more sometime. Uh, that sounds yeah, super, definitely. That's that's curious. But so now we've talked about malevolent, malevolent <laughs> robots for like seven minutes or something. Uh, let's let's talk about that cool paper that you were so excited about at the beginning. Yeah, we'll try to drag this back on track. So <laughs> this is a paper that was uh, written by an interdisciplinary group from uh, Stanford, Berkeley, Google Brain, and OpenAI, which is a new artificial intelligence initiative that is um, being primarily funded by uh, Elon Musk. Yeah, that's and a good list. And so they have this really great paper about what are the things that we should be testing for and thinking about as we continue to develop these artificial agents. And they're definitely looking at scenarios that are probably a little bit more likely to occur. We're not talking about end of the world scenarios as much here, but Mm -hmm. it gives you a lot of food for thought. And I think they've done a really good job of um, kind of thinking about the world almost in a way that reminds me sometimes of like little kids uh, in a way that can be very, you think about the world as, as a place that can be very literal and where you don't know very much. And all you have is, is the heuristics and like what kinds of weird interpretations could you come up with in the course of, you know, trying to find your way in the world. Right. So 
there are a few big classes of types of um, things that they think should be on our radar as researchers uh, going forward. Well, maybe... Well, maybe mm-hmm. I can tell you one that uh, popped into my mind when we were doing the last episode. So one mm-hmm. of the things that we talked about in the last episode is we kind of stumbled across this idea of like, what if there was a little R2-D2 robot rolling around your house, trying all kinds of wacky things to try to clean your house? And then, you know, taking that input and uh, using reinforcement learning to figure out, am I getting closer or further away from my goal? Yes. Thinking back on Star Wars... I recall R2-D2 wasn't exactly the most graceful robot. Sometimes R2-D2 bonked into things. And so that that image popped into my mind when we were talking about this in the last episode of R2-D2, you know, um, kind of rolling around your house. And maybe he, like, uh, is R2-D2 a he? Maybe it. I always um, thought so. Bumps into something fragile and it falls onto the floor or something. Like, that. that seems like a real risk. And... If R2-D2 enters your house without a huge amount of knowledge of the things to try or to not necessarily try, um, or to, to try to not do, I could see that being a real risk. Yeah, so you have to you have to start think about the constraints that you need to put on your system. So we, we talked in the last episode about reinforcement learning and how a lot of those algorithms, these are many of the, um, the algorithms that underlie uh, modern artificial intelligence. Very often they have some kind of notion of a reward policy. And, or I'm sorry, a reward function. And a reward function is some kind of mathematical expression that says, what is it I'm trying to do? So in the case of the R2-D2 robot, it's trying to clean your apartment. And so that sounds fairly straightforward, but then um, the thing that I think you need to think about a little bit more carefully is what kind of constraints do you want to put on that statement? So here's, here's one idea. Let's suppose your robot comes up with the idea of, you know what's the easiest way to clean your apartment? I'm purposely coming up with like the most inflammatory thing right off the bat um is it's like you know who really messes up your apartment you do and so i think i'm just gonna like lock you out of your apartment and that'll solve the problem (laughs) right and like it doesn't know that that's not what you want because that is that gets you a clean apartment that's not on the list of things not to do so then you have to start introducing thinking about the kinds of those kinds of mistakes that it could make and what kinds of constraints you can put in place to keep it from wandering too far afield. These are really fun to think about. Uh, the first one is maybe you have, um, they're talking about what are some negative side effects. So the idea is I might be trying to, uh, what, what my R2-D2 robot wants to do is it sees a little pile of Cheerios that have been knocked onto the floor and it's going to go over and it's going to sweep them up. But as it happens in between the robot and the Cheerios is a nice flower vase that is glass and very breakable. And the robot is like, well, I want to go clean up this, this mess as soon as possible because I'm looking for rewards that I can get right now. And the shortest path between two points is a straight line. So, so I'm going to go over to the Cheerios, knock over the vase in the process and crash. Yes. And I've now accomplished my goal of cleaning up the Cheerios, but I've, maybe uh, made a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. So this is an example of a negative side effect that, that, they, that they have that you need to put in place, you know, what are the things that you want to avoid, even if they can lead to your desired outcome a little bit more effectively or a little bit more quickly, they're, they're bad enough that you don't want to take that route anyway. The second thing I thought this one was really fun to think about is avoiding reward hacking. 
Um, What's reward hacking? So reward hacking, this sort of reminds me of, (laughs) you sometimes hear these stories about like parents who are trying to potty train their kids and they say every time you go to the bathroom like a big boy or a big girl I'm going to give you a piece of candy and then you hear about the the kids who drink tons and tons of water and then are just going to the bathroom every 10 minutes because they want to eat candy all day mm-hmm. yeah so oh, imagine, I see I see what yeah. you mean. so <laughs> I see and so an example of this there are a couple funny interpretations that they have of this with the example of our little cleaning robot uh, one is that, okay, you teach it somehow that knocking over vases is um, knocking over vases is making messes, and that's not what we want to do, and so, therefore, you know, let's not make vase messes. Uh, but in the process of learning this, the robot has learned that um, you know what's really great is cleaning up messes, and you know what makes big messes is knocking over vases. And so what I'm going to do is just walk around knocking over vases and then cleaning up all the messes, and it's going to be uh. so wonderful. <laughs> oh, no. Um, and then there's there's also literally sweeping it under the rug. I mean, is that would that constitute reward hacking, where uh, if it's under the rug, it doesn't count as a mess, but it's not really what you want? Yeah, absolutely. They had another good example of maybe you're a little imprecise in how you formulated it and you tell your robot, I want you to make sure that, that you don't see any messes in this apartment. Uh, maybe yeah. what maybe what the robot learns is I just stand here with my eyes closed and that's how I deal with this problem. <laughs> right. Oh, I was thinking like, oh, I just take your comforter off your bed and I cover up the mess, all of the messes with the <laughs> sheets or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. These are the kinds of things that, that you need to think about is, is what are those um, constraints to the, uh, to the reward function that make sure that you don't have these kind of weird perverse incentives where it kind of like just ends up flying off the rails. And, and you know, um, with kids i mean in it like they generally know what you mean right so they'll know that they're reward hacking or whatever but they'll keep doing it because it works right Mm -hmm. with a robot there is no you know what i mean clause like the robots are really just earnestly doing their best to optimize the the function that you gave them right so you can't just say no don't cause mischief because the robot doesn't know what that means yes yes um, another thing that I was thinking, my dog. Okay. Yes. So another thing that I was thinking about as I was reading this paper, they, they made a good point, which is that there are certain types of actions that are going to be more or less disruptive. And you want your little robot to be taking into a t- account, not just is trying to maximize some objective, but is trying to maximize them in a way that doesn't make the rest of the environment completely thrown off. So let's say you want to teach a robot that you really only wanted to clean the apartment uh, when you're not trying to sleep and that vacuuming in the middle of the night is, is not good. And so in general, what you want to do then is have some kind of setting where the robot recognizes the state of the environment that it's in and it maybe has to um, penalize somewhat upsetting the current environment. And so you say, if what you're doing is going to be a big change in the environment, then you have to have kind of a, a higher standard of proof if you want to go through and do it. So you're, I guess you're like still technically probably allowed to vacuum in the middle of the night. Cause that's not the kind of thing that we would necessarily have a hard 
rule that's like encoded for that but mm-hmm. you better be like really sure that you really need to vacuum in the if you want to do it in the middle <laughs> of the night because it's upsetting you know the peace and quiet yeah so like i don't know your your dog gets up and knocks over i don't know a potted plant and now there's a bunch of dirt all over the floor maybe that might be uh, a, a sudden change in the in the messiness or the cleanliness state of your living room that the robot might decide to to weigh that heavily yeah, but you know, you can you can see how now this is starting to get much more complex from a computational standpoint because now my robot yeah. doesn't have to just figure out what he's going to do, but he has to figure out how the environment is likely to respond. And so this is starting to get it's not just about me anymore. It's about me plus my world. Mm-hmm. Which yeah, I this think seems is like really a cool. really simple problem when we started. Like, it seems like a really simple problem. You just put your robot in there and the robot kind of pokes around and does stuff and sees what the responses are. But, like, the, the more we get into this, the more complicated it gets. Yes. So third thing that they were talking about is uh, what they call scalable oversight. Uh, and so sometimes there are certain decisions that uh, can be very expensive for the robot to explore. Um And so let's say, for example, that I only have a very limited amount of time to sit there and train my robot. And so the first few times it asks me some question like, should I do this? Should I do that? I'm willing to say yes, but I don't want to sit there and have to, let's say, literally tell it, okay, it's not just Cheerios that you have to clean up. You also have to clean up the dog food. And you also have to clean up when I drop, um, let's say, some little pieces of shredded cheese on the floor when I'm cooking. And there's all these different things that can be on the floor. And I don't want the robot to have to come ask me for permission every single time it sees something it wants to do. Right. So you're basically saying you don't want to have to babysit it too much. Exactly. Like it's okay. It's kind of like when, when an intern starts at your company or something and the intern asks you questions every 10 minutes and it really gets old very quickly and you're not able to do work. As opposed to, like, if the intern maybe asks you some better questions every two hours or something like that. That's a lot more sustainable. Yeah, but you, you have to also start to think about there are definitely times when you want to be giving it feedback. Um, and so it needs to start to develop almost a sense of judgment about what are the important questions to be asking. So the example that they gave for the cleaning robot is, let's say it's walking around and it's, it's finding things. Um, and in general, it has the heuristic of when I find things out of place on the, on the ground, I throw them away. Um, and that might be fine if it finds a candy wrapper and it's never seen a candy wrapper before, but it can, you know, generalize from other examples and throw away the candy wrapper. Mm. But let's say it finds a cell phone. You don't want it throwing away your cell phone, but no, why would it know the difference between a candy wrapper and a cell phone? Well, that's a good point. I mean, it's a very human thing. Like humans know the difference. This looks expensive. I shouldn't throw it away or, or like a ring or something. Yeah. Yeah. But these are, of course, you know, things that robots don't know. And so how are you going Mm -hmm. to um, figure out the things that you can generalize very quickly, that there's just a simple rule and just learn it as quickly as possible and stop asking me versus, oh no, these are actually tricky situations. And I do want you asking me for guidance because, you know, we're doing something that's going to be a little bit special or a little bit more uh, distinct here from the rest of the the things that we've been doing Mm -hmm. in all these other cases that look really similar. Okay, fourth one, safe exploration. Uh, So we talked a little bit in the last episode about how as one of these agents is walking around and learning, there's kind of this exploration in the first stages where it's just figuring out what's going on, where where are the, the walls in this apartment, how do I most effectively clean up a pile of Cheerios, 
And then at some point, it starts to learn a little bit more, and it goes into uh, this phase of phase of exploitation. It kind of knows what to do. Um, but in that first stage, yeah. when it's exploring, there's all kinds of mistakes that it could make. Yeah, like I imagine R two D two bouncing around your apartment, like hitting things with the broom to see what happens, or with a mop, or or you know, like just generally trashing my apartment. Yeah. Yeah, just just trying stuff. You know, just trying random stuff. If you imagine, if you like took the the personality of a, of a one-year-old or something and you put it in a robot that could like roll all around and stuff well that seems kind of like that that's what's in my head at least yeah they one of the examples that they called out i thought this was was kind of fun is also thinking about what kinds of exploration are safe and what kinds of exploration are are you want to stay away from it so are you talking about like safe for for the user like don't leave the floor the mopped floor wet or like like what kinds of what kinds of unsafe things would you be talking about because it seems like an apartment is generally a pretty safe place well i mean so here's the example from the cleaning robot is let's imagine that it's mopping the floor and Uh now it's trying to figure out where's a place that i can put a mop and what is a mop good for and just what's going on with this whole mopping situation and it decides (laughs) to stick a wet mop into an electrical outlet Oh, oh, no, 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 no. Right. I well, see what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I mean, as a human, I would never think to do that. I know what happens. Well, yeah, because at some point, you know, maybe when you were a kid or something, your parents told you not to stick a fork in Actually, the electrical outlet. Or maybe you tried it and <laughs> and you learned very quickly not to do it. But, you know, the robot, it it might learn fairly quickly as well, but it might learn at the expense of burning down your house. Yeah. Actually come to, come to think of it. This is one of the very few times in my life that my mom ever used uh, negative reinforcement. My mom uh, majored in psychology and, and uh, at the time they were talking about how positive reinforcement was really the way to go and just avoid negative reinforcement whenever possible. But one time I reached for an electrical outlet and she slapped my hand away and it hurt and I started to cry and I never did that again. Yep. Uh, so I, Another, I guess it, I went through my head at some point, like, hmm, what would, it, what would happen if I did this? Another fun example that they have about, like, some kinds of exploration are okay and some kinds are not okay is they give the example of, let's say you're interested in tigers. There are several things that you can do then to express that interest in tigers. One is you could go buy a book about tigers. And the other mm-hmm. one is you could go buy a tiger. And one of these is much safer than the other one. And so how does it start to learn these heuristics for what are safe, safe spaces to explore? It, found, it feels a little yeah. bit like funny saying that, but that's what I mean very literally is what are the things that are safe for me to experiment with? And it's no big deal. If I try to clean up the Cheerios with a sponge, like I'll figure it out and it'll all be fine versus like, oh no, things can go really wrong. Yeah. Um, okay. So the last one after safe exploration is robustness to distributional shift. Uh, And so the idea here is that sometimes you might be in a position where you're kind of learning your rules in one regime, but then you need to go apply them in another regime. And then sometimes the rules that you learn in one place don't transfer uh, particularly well. 
So basically, how does the artificial intelligence recognize, first of all, that it's in a different environment than its training environment, and then B, how quickly does it figure out how to make adjustments? Uh, so the example that they give for the cleaning robot is you might have a cleaning robot that is, let's say, optimized to clean a factory floor. So you have all kinds of assumptions about how many people are around and what kinds of uh, let's say like contaminants might be present, like you might have kinds of weird chemicals and things like that, or um, it can be very hot or very cold in a factory, all kinds of things that um, are no big deal in a factory, but that uh, are not particularly, um, you have to be a little bit more careful about them in places where humans are. So then you train it on the factory floor and also let's imagine that it's probably usually harder to break things in a factory. Things in a factory might be all, um, or I'm thinking actually probably more of something like a warehouse, um, where things are maybe all packaged up. And like, if you bump into something, it's no big deal. Then you go and you put it in somebody's house and it starts bumping into things. And now it's knocking vases off of shelves and it's breaking your electronics and it's setting your house on fire. Cause it just, it's learned a set of rules that don't generalize well. Mm, I see what you mean. Um, so thinking about the differences between where you train these agents and then where you actually uh, deploy them. And I don't know, maybe you have all kinds of different rules for what kinds of, uh, whether you're okay with your with your house being cleaned at all hours of the night and I'm not. And so then when I borrow your your house cleaning robot overnight, how, how quickly does it figure out that like, no, we don't vacuum in the middle of the night? You know, just how, how adaptive is it to like, let's say sudden like, but potentially dramatic shifts in its environment. Yeah, and so that gets us to the end of this paper. Um, like I said, it's it's a really, really good paper. Um, <laughs> my dog is very excited right now. <laughs> Your dog likes the paper. Uh, yeah, she's, she's a big fan of reinforcement learning papers. Um, she's a big fan of reinforcement learning in general. If you ever want to think about reinforcement learning, get a dog. Um, get a dog yeah. or have a kid. A little, little Markov decision process makers. <laughs> um, so, but it's, the paper itself is, is actually pretty substantive. It's 25 or 30 pages, but it's the most accessible paper I think of any thing that I can think of us describing. Like it's so, so good. And it's very, very, um, we've just kind of scratched the surface of all of the examples of kinds of things that you should be thinking about. And I think they've put a lot of work into this paper to try to enumerate all the different uh, ways that things can potentially go a little bit wrong because what they're really trying to do is to define the parameters of what makes a successful artificial intelligence. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, it doesn't make these kinds of mistakes. So they're really trying to be thoughtful about what are all the different kinds of mistakes and can we illustrate them? Um, and so it's just really fun to read because you get to think about things, uh, you know, decision-making in a way that you don't usually because you're a, an adult human who understands how the world works. Um, and you get to be like a very naive robot or a little kid or a dog or whatever again. And it's just, it's really, really fun to read. I highly recommend it. So um, let me just give you the name of this paper and then it'll also be in the show notes. Sounds good. I know what I'm going to do after we finish recording. Yes. The title of this paper is Concrete Problems in AI Safety. Uh, and then you can find links to it on the Google research blog and then also uh, the paper itself is hosted on the archive, so it's all open access and everything. And you'll also find it in the show notes for this episode. Thanks for sharing that with me. I uh, I really like accessible papers because I don't do data science as a day job, and so um, you know it's 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 always fun to find substantive papers 
that are also accessible to people who are not steeped in it every day. Linear Digressions is a Creative Commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.